0: Chapter seventeen of the Harbour This Librevox recording is in the public domain recording by Tom Weiss The Harbour by Ernest Poole. Chapter seventeen Early in the evening I was taken out to the visitor's room, and there I found Eleanor's father. When he saw me, Dylan smiled. Do you know where you are? he asked. You're not in the Bastille, or even Libby prison. "'You're in the Jefferson Market Jail.' "'It hasn't felt that way,' I said. "'Probably not. But it is that way, and there's Eleanor to be thought of.' "'Eleanor will understand.' I saw his features tightened. I noticed now that his face was drawn as though he too had been through a good deal. "'Yes,' he said. "'She understands. But it's a bit tough on her, isn't it? Jail is not quite in her line.' I felt my throat contracting. I know all that. I'm sorry enough. On her account. Then let's get out of this, he said. I've brought you bail. No use staying in here all night. None at all, I agreed. I want to get back to the waterfront. We're going to issue an answer to this. They'll need me for the writing. Dylan watched me a moment. You won't be allowed to do that, he said. They're under martial law down there. I looked at him quickly. "'The troops are here?' "'Yes,' he replied, and there was a pause. "'These arrests, this riot,' I said a little huskily. "'Weren't they all framed up ahead? They needed the riot to get in the troops.' "'The troops are here. Rather damnable. Do you think the people on the docks will just sit back and take it all?' "'They'll have to,' he said gently. "'The world's work has been clogged up a little.' It's time to go on again now. On the street outside he took my hand. My boy, when this is over we'll get together, you and I. All right, when it's over, I said. The farm that night again changed to my eyes. It was now an orderly village of tents, two regiments of militia were here, and their sentries reached for a mile to the north watching the big company's docks. I walked up along the line and had talks with some of the sentries. I remember one in particular, a thin, nervous little man, a shoe clerk in a department store. Every workday for six years he had fitted shoes on ladies' feet. He had been doing it all that morning, and now here he was down on the waterfront with only the stars above him and great shadowy spaces all around out of which at any moment he expected rushes by strikers. These strikers to him were not human, they were foreigners, for the moment gone mad, to be treated very much as mad dogs, and here he was all by himself, his nerves on edge, with a gun in his hands, the absurdity of that gun in his hands, and the serious danger. I went into many tenements into homes I had come to know in the strike, and they too were different now. Their principal leaders taken away and their headquarters closed by the police, the disorganization was complete. That spirit they had relied upon, that strange new spirit of the mass which they had created by coming together, was now dead, and each one felt the weakness of being alone, the weakness of his separate self. Blindly they fought against their despair. I found them packing tenement rooms, gathering instinctively in search of their great friend, the crowd. But from such gatherings as these, the weaker, the more timid, and the wiser kept away. Rash spirits led these meetings, and here was the same hot passion that I had felt back in the jail. These people did not want to think. The time for thinking had gone by they wanted to act, to do something quick. Their minds were fiercely set on the scabs, the police, and the militia. Their strike was not yet lost. Their friends and sympathizers were working hard that very night to get their leaders out on bail. In Washington a House committee was striving still to compel arbitration. Everywhere the more moderate spirits were drawing together, trying to work out something safe." but these people did not know this. They were in their tenements, they were scattered far apart. They only knew how they had been clubbed, that three had been killed and many more wounded, and that now the troops were here. And the more fiery ones among them were feeling only one thing now, that when you are hit you must hit back, you must show you're not scared, you must show you're a man." and so on the next morning no women and no children but huge silent throngs of men drifted out of the tenements down to the docks and moved slowly along the sentry lines. The chance to show they were not afraid came late in the afternoon. The clear sweet call of a bugle came floating gaily on the air, then the long hard roll of drums, and from their camp on the farm the troops came on the double quick up along the waterfront. Now thousands of strikers were running that way. From the foot of a city street across the wide open space to a pier the militia formed in two double lines, each line facing outward. Then down that street came mounted police and behind them a score of trucks loaded with freight. At first I had hopes that the mass would not move, but out of the silence came angry shouts and those behind pushed forward those in front were pressed close up to the sharp lines of bayonets, were prodded savagely by the troops. Militia youngsters but half-trained, in two thin lines opposing what appeared to them a furious sea of faces, fists, and angry cries. No wonder they were nervous. Bricks came flying from all sides, and even heavy paving-stones, and then a few pistol-shots out of the mass. I saw a militiaman drop on one knee and slowly topple over. I saw an excited young officer shout at his men and wave his sword. I saw long rows of guns make quick rhythmic movements, then level straight out, and there were two long flashes of fire. Disordered throngs were running now. Only a few men here and there turned to fire their pistols or to shout back frenzied quivering oaths. Behind them a few soldiers were still shooting without orders. Near the sandpile on which I stood I saw a young militiaman enough like that little shoe-clerk to have been his brother. His face was white and his eyes wild. He was panting, pumping his lever, and blindly firing shot after shot. God damn em slaughter em, slaughter em. An officer knocked up his gun. That night the waterfront was still. Only the long, slow-moving line of the figures of sentries was to be seen. The troops were back in their camp on the farm. Bivouac fires were burning down there, but up here was only a dark, empty space. Here, scattered about on the pavement, after the firing had ceased, I had seen the dark, inert bodies of men. Most of them had begun to move, until fully half were crawling about. They had been picked up and counted thirty-nine wounded, fourteen dead. These, two had all been taken away. From the high steel dock sheds, there came a deep, harsh murmur made up of faint whistles, the rattle of winches, the shouts of the foreman, the heavy jar and crash of crates. A tug puffed smoothly into a slip with three barges in her wake. I walked slowly out that way. The tugmen and the bargemen talked in quiet voices, as they made fast their craft to the pier. Below them the water was lapping and slapping. The world's work has been clogged up a little. It's to go on again now. The next day three heavy battleships steamed sluggishly through the narrows and came to anchor in the bay. When interviewed by reporters their commanders were vastly amused. No, they said, the United States Navy was not governed as to its movements by strikes they simply happened to be here through orders issued weeks ago, but their coming was featured in headlines. I saw something else in the papers that night, a force greater than all battleships. As a week before I had felt a whole country in revolt, I felt now a country of law and order, a whole nation of angry tradesmen impatiently demanding an end to all this foreign anarchy, WE WANT NO MORE OF YOUR STRIKES, IT SAID, NONE OF YOUR NEW CROWD SPIRIT, NONE OF YOUR WILD TALK AND DREAMS. WE WANT NO CHANGE IN THIS COUNTRY OF OURS. THE AUTHORITIES OBEYED THIS WILL. BAIL WAS DENIED TO MARSH, Vasca, AND JOE, AND FOR THEM A SPEEDY TRIAL WAS URGED. THE PRESS NOW HELD THEM RESPONSIBLE NOT ONLY FOR THAT FIRST NEGRO'S DEATH, BUT FOR ALL THE DEATHS SINCE THEIR ARREST let them pay the full penalty, let them be made an example of, let this business of anarchy be dealt with and settled once and for all. The work of crushing the strike went on. More troops were brought to the harbor. On the docks there were not only negroes now, thousands of immigrant laborers were brought from Ellis Island and put to work at double pay, and on every incoming vessel the stokers were all kept on board." Among the strikers there was a break that swiftly spread and became a stampede, and in the following week the work of the harbor went on as before, with its regular commonplace weekly toll of a hundred killed and injured. Peace had come again at last. On Saturday morning of that week I stood on the deck of a ferryboat, packed with little commuters who waved and cheered a huge ocean liner bound for Europe, lying deep in the water, her hold laden heavy with the products of this teeming land, her decks thronged with travelers with money in their pockets, her band playing, her flags streaming out, and over all on the captain's bridge the officers up there in command, she was a mighty symbol of order and prosperity and of that efficiency which to me had been a religion for so many years. We all followed the great ship with our eyes as "'Gathering headway, she steamed out past the Statue of Liberty toward the battleships beyond. "'Well,' said an amused little man close by me, "'I guess that'll be about all from the strikers.' "'Oh, my smiling little citizen, you've only seen the beginning,' I thought. "'What were the strikers thinking now, and what would they be thinking soon? They had wanted easier lives, they had wanted to feel themselves powers here.' Caught up in the tide of democracy now sweeping all around the earth, they had wanted to feel themselves running themselves in all this work they were doing. So they had come out on strike and become a crowd, and in the crowd they had suddenly found such strength as they never dreamed could be theirs, and they would not easily forget. The harbor was already seeing to that, for already its work had gone on with a rush and all its heavy labor was weighing down upon them, like a million tons of brick on their chests. I remembered what Joe Kramer had said. It's got so they can't even breathe without thinking. Was the defeat of this one strike the end? The grim battleships answered, yes, it is the end. But the restless harbor answered, no. What change was coming in my life? I did not know. Of one thing only I was sure. The last of my gods, efficiency, whose feet had stood firm on mechanical laws and in whose head was all the brains of all the big men at the top, had now come tottering, crashing down. And in its place a huge new god, whose feet stood deep in poverty and in whose head were all the dreams of all the toilers of the earth, had called to me with one deep voice, with one tremendous burning passion for the freedom of mankind end of chapter seventeen recording by tom weiss